This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. I'm Jean and Sean, Washington columnist for Reuters Breaking Views. This week, we went to Capitol Hill to talk to Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California, who's the senior Democrat on the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee. Waters was a member of the critical committee when credit began drying up in 2007. She remembers that few had answers as lenders like Countrywide and Lehman Brothers collapsed. She supported the U.S. government's $700 billion bailout plan in 2008, largely because there was no Plan B. She was also a member of the committee when the Dodd-Frank financial overhaul legislation was written and passed in 2010. Today, she is one of the leading Democrats defending the law amid Republican efforts to roll back some of the rules. Waters has long been an outspoken member of her party and more recently has been a vocal critic of President Donald Trump, who has called her crazy. Her attacks on the commander-in-chief have earned her a new generation of supporters among millennials who call her anti-Maxine. Polls show that Republicans are in danger of losing their majority in the House after November's midterm elections. If Democrats take over, Waters is poised to lead the Financial Services Committee that takes Wall Street CEOs to tasks for scandals. We talked to Waters about what memories have stayed with her from the crisis and how she would shake things up if she takes over the committee. hard to believe that 10 years has already passed. What was the moment that you realized this was going to be different than past economic downturns? I mean, you know, there was the recession in the 90s and, you know, under the first President Bush and, and other things that had happened, but this turned out to be such a calamity on a scale that, you know, we hadn't seen in decades. What were the signs that you were seeing when that made you start to realize this was actually going to be different? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that I had started to get complaints about boarded-up housing. Hmm. Uh, and I can recall uh, going to, I believe it was uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I was invited to come, and there was a town hall meeting and the congresswoman of that district at that time was uh, Stephanie Tubbs Jones. Mm. uh, She invited me and there was a big town hall meeting and people were complaining about all of the houses that were being boarded up in their neighborhoods and how they were 
not kept up and um, no one seemed to know what was going on. The hmm. dogs were overtaking the lawns and on and on and on. Was this before in this like was, late 07 or 08? This was or? Um, late 07. And of course nobody knew what was going on. Mm. Uh, but um, we started to hear these complaints, you know, coming from everywhere. Uh, and I started to hear about them in the greater Los Angeles area, et cetera, et cetera. We had no idea what was happening. Uh, but I think the moment that I really understood what was going on it was at the point that um, the Treasury Secretary of the time, Paulson, was over here. There had been uh, a news release about um, the meltdown. Something was going on. Lehman Brothers was mm. failing. I called Barney Frank, and I asked Barney, did anyone call you and tell you about the meetings that were going on uh, to make a determination about what to do after Lehman Brothers? He said, nobody called me, and hmm. I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you would rather not now And things deal with began that. to happen very fast. And Paulson was over here saying what had to be done in order to save this country from mm. um, a depression. And uh, he made the case for how this bailout and nobody knew whether or not his recommendation was the right one or not, because no one knew what to do. And in the final analysis, um, his recommendation was accepted without, if I have any regrets, without us being able uh, to extract commitments uh, from Paulson about what we were going to do about these people who were losing their homes. Mm. Um, but we were, we were left uh, without the experience, the expertise, the knowledge of something like this. And we could have all, it could have, not me, basically, you know, uh, it was um, now, you know, in the hands of, um, of Nancy Pelosi and, and the leadership, I guess, on both sides of the aisle. Um, they could have said no, but then we, what would have happened? Sure. Nobody knew yeah. if we were going to go, you know, it's going to keep falling into a, a depression. And so I think for me and I think for others, the final question was certainly do we go along with Paulson is saying? And if we don't go along, then what do we do? And we had nothing. We knew nothing mm -hmm. that we could do, mm -hmm. and so we went along with his recommendation for the bailout. Yeah. Well, what did you think after that first vote actually did fail, not, not because of you know, actually your, your side of the aisle, but, but because of some others. Um, and, you know, we saw the market tank, you know, uh, and obviously quickly thereafter. Well, you know, I was not certain, but I joined in uh, with uh, the leadership to convince members of the Black Caucus and others that we had to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I became one of the ones who pushed for did it, make, did it make a difference in terms of, I mean, was, was politics even a consideration at that time? Because obviously it was a Republican administration. Um, Hank Paulson was, you know, head of Goldman Sachs before he took that job. Um, w was that a factor at, well, at all at um, that time or well, because think, it was so bad? I think so. <laughs> uh, the idea, particularly the Republicans, of the government spending this kind of money sure. uh, to do some kind of bailout for the financial institutions that was supposed to be, uh, you know, the basis of our economy, uh, 
and basically their philosophy about the government not doing too much, you know, for anybody, um, made them, for the most part, not support it, mm. not want to support it. Um, but I don't think that, uh, aside from these different philosophies about how, um, you know, these financial institutions work, what their responsibilities were, and then trying to understand exactly how the uh, cascade had taken place, mm. you know, with the failure of Lehman Brothers. Nobody really knew this, and there was a lot of uncertainty. But I think on our side of the aisle, there was a lot of fear uh, that this economy was just going to explode. It was going to run into a depression. Yeah. And so uh, we were thinking that we had to save it and we didn't know anything else to do. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of what was going on at the time. One memory that I have is uh, of myself uh, getting engaged in convincing people to vote for it after the first vote mm. and um, wondering whether or not I was doing the right thing mm. and wondering whether or not I was setting myself up for a lot of criticism. Um, because people had been reluctant and I had been uh, extremely forceful mm. in, in convincing them that they should do the bailout. I mean, I, I remember how I was feeling. Uh, I'm doing this, but oh, <laughs> I don't know Yeah, <laughs> this is the right thing to do, yeah. So mm -hmm. was it for you uh, like a, a gut feeling that, I mean, seeing the collapsing banks all around you that this you know, something had to be done, and as you said, there well, was no you know, plan B. Yeah, well, for me, uh, the bottom line was nobody else has any answers. Mm. If we don't do this, what what do we do? Yeah. And if we don't do this, what's going to happen? So then fast forward to uh, the writing of Dodd-Frank, and you were a senior member of the committee then as well. Um, were there certain things that you you wanted to see in particular in that bill, um, whether it was for, you know, small businesses or the well, homeowners no, who um, You know, as, as time went on, it was clear to me that a lot of families were going to lose their homes and that communities were being disrupted. And I thought, well, you know, first of all, I thought, when we began to learn about and really understand the different... Um, way that the mortgages were being put out there, mm. uh, these exotic mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my first concern. You mean to tell me that they didn't even vet, yeah. you know, someone that, uh, yeah, and I can remember all of these um, young people, some who were basically uh, writing these loans out of the back of their cars. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was countrywide at the mm -hmm. time, but I knew that there was a lot of activity of people being able to get loans and a lot of people who were holding out that they could get them into a house. And then I learned about the fraud. They were telling people uh, to increase the income on the application so that they could look better and all. I remember seeing some of that stuff. And I, you know, I thought, well, you know, sure, there's a lot of, you know, people getting involved in this mortgage business. I remember that. So I think the first thing I wanted to do was to get rid of some of those toxic loan mm -hmm. uh, activities that were taking place and uh, try and save homes. And then I, I really got into modifications, mm -hmm. how to do loan modifications, and um, discovered that many of the banks had their own operations. Some of them were contracting out 
yes. uh, with other businesses mm -hmm. to do them. But people were complaining. I'm trying to get this, get them to help me. I'm trying to get them to, you know, they didn't know the words always of modifications. But as I do, uh, dove into it, uh, many of these contracted companies had people who were not qualified. It was almost as if they were hiring them off the street and they didn't really know too much what they were doing. They weren't really helping people. Uh, I, I think, I, I know, I ran into fraud uh, that had taken place and then uh, I know that the banks were not organized well to do loan modifications and we were having some uh, experiences that were um, unclear. For example, the, the, uh, the banks did have operations, many of them that were offshore, mm. that only dealt with kind of a halfway servicing where people would call and you had people who would respond to the call who, as if they had a kind of a cookie cutter mm. piece of paper in mm -hmm. front of them. So if this person says, you know, I can pay half of my loan, what have you, uh, they could not really do the loan modification. All they could do was the very limited stuff. Somebody maybe missed a month or, or so, I think they could do a little something, but they weren't really loan modifications. Uh, the banks eventually got better at it, uh, but that, that uh, captured my attention a lot. And I started to learn a lot about loan modifications, and we dedicated one person in my office just to, uh, to learn and to help people with loan modifications, we would go directly to these services now and we would walk through uh, what the person was saying about their lack of income or their reduced income or the fact that they had not actually, you know, signed something that would cause them to have their interest rates increase on and on and on. And so we were able uh, to fight back on some of them and save. Uh, a lot of homes just by challenging the services and, and the banks. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got deeply involved in that. And then I got involved with uh, what is known as a neighborhood stabilization project, where I have to create uh, legislation for nonprofits and even some privates uh, to be able to um, receive funds, you know, through the cities. Uh, and nonprofit organizations to rehab some of these properties, put them back on the market. If they were affordable, they had to be affordable. And then I went out and I looked at them and I got pretty much involved in uh, the Neighborhood Stabilization Project. Okay. Yeah. And with Dodd-Frank in particular, <laughs> did, did you feel like at the end of the day when, when you saw the final bill, because you know, obviously not everyone's going to get what they want, but did you feel like that was a bill you know, that you could be proud of that addressed, you know, whether it's uh, Title II and, and the derivatives and resolution planning and all that. that no, I didn't it know was, all of that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did know that a lot of work had gone into uh, this reform and that I'd learned a lot about the banks and the financial institutions and what they had done. And so I was, I was comfortable uh, with us going forward. Uh, and then later on, there were criticisms that said you didn't do enough, mm -hmm. or there were areas that you didn't really address uh, adequately. Yeah. But I think in the final analysis, Dodd-Frank has been very helpful mm. in uh, dealing with um, you know, the financial institutions, understanding uh, what 
they had done and how they operated and be able to put a stop to some of it and uh, a way to understand better why capitalization was so important, uh, a way to basically understand that at least we had come up with something uh, to take a look at them, um, you know, periodically. Uh, and to come up with a way by which we could wind them down mm -hmm. if we felt that that was something that had to be done. And so do you feel like they have enough capital now? Do you feel like they're, the standards now are they're better. high enough? They're better, but we always have to watch um, capitalization issues and not be afraid to come forward and say, we need to increase this. Yeah. Something is going on here. And uh, we're going to have another meltdown. Uh, if we allow the banks to continue to operate in the way that they are. So capitalization is one big issue that must always be uh, reviewed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, in the face of that, obviously, Wall Street has a pretty powerful lobbying machine here um, and can throw a lot of money at problems. Um, especially now, 10 years after the crisis, and seeing some of the changes made to Dodd-Frank what some of the regulators are considering. I mean, how worried are you that we could go backwards on well, some of these standards? Uh, we, we see signs from time to time. We see uh, signs in different ways. Um, what happened with um, this catastrophe was loans were being given to people who couldn't afford them, and products were being dreamed up in order to get them into these loans, but they could be packaged and they could be sold off. Uh, at one time, we understood where uh, we didn't know where the loans were. We didn't yeah. know even if they were in this country. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying <laughs> to track down things that we didn't know and understand uh, when we forced them uh, to do a moan, uh, more loan uh, modifications. We didn't understand the um, uh, robocalling that mm -hmm. they were doing yeah, and yeah. all of that. And robo-signing. So, uh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. It, it was just a, a big learning experience all the way. Uh, but yes, the uh, financial institutions, the banks have a lot of power. And uh, Dodd-Frank has helped us uh, to understand how to fight them on mm. the side of the aisle and how to push back and uh, how to uh, help people to understand through our deliberations what was going on. Uh, the problem that we have is the opposite side of the aisle philosophically is totally different about the role of banks uh, and regulation. And uh, they don't believe in deregulation. It's almost as if uh, let the marketplace work, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what they think is pure capitalism uh, that uh, don't interfere, the government has no business interfering kind of thing. And so uh, on our side of the aisle, we've spent a lot of time just uh, explaining and talking and helping to forge alliances with outside groups that would help us to push back. Uh, and we don't win, uh, but uh, I think we've done a good job of uh, standing up for Dodd-Frank and working with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and with the SEC and other you know, regulatory agencies who really had been at fault mm -hmm. uh, for not paying more attention and not knowing what was going on. And so I think when we take the House back, we'll be able to do a lot of what we've been attempting to do. Yeah, well, yeah. actually, that's a good transition to some yeah. of the questions I want to ask you yeah. uh, if Democrats do take the House back and, and you uh, take the leadership of the Financial Services Committee. 
What would be your main goals if you become chair, um, especially looking at some of the unfinished business from the crisis? Well, you know, first of all, I have to uh, be realistic and not get beyond myself and say that I don't know uh, whether or not I'll be the chair. I don't know whether or not uh, we're going to be in the majority, but I certainly would welcome uh, the opportunity uh, to, to be the chair of the Financial Services Committee. And um, I think that there are a lot of issues that I want to look at, and I think that the GSEs mm -hmm. is a focal point for what can and maybe should be done uh, to have agencies that are committed to the proposition that working class people who can afford to buy homes should be able to buy homes without being tricked or led into mortgages that are not good mortgages, mm -hmm. uh, that they should be able to have a 30-year loan, uh, which I think is important to being able to get working people into homes, that they have loans that they can have reasonable down payments for and reasonable monthly payments that they can afford without being worried about within six months this uh, interest rate is going to increase, sure. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so, uh, so I think GSEs are important <coughs> as a secondary market uh, to provide opportunities for home ownership. Well, so I, I want to ask you then on that front, so do you think that there's still a role for government in Fannie and Freddie to help provide yes. that backstop? Yes, I do. I think there's a role. I think there are um, some corrections that should be made, and uh, of course, you know, it's been a while, but I'm still thinking that um, the fact that they had to be concerned about profits and dividends for the private sector uh, that was uh, a part of uh, Fannie and Freddie uh, must be looked at. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think the government has a role to play, but I do think that uh, it should not be so profit-driven uh, that they are anxious uh, to have you know, the paper coming to them uh, that they can finance, uh, hoping to make money on it, when the paper, in fact, is not good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and if you do become chair, I mean, there's, there's a difference, and you know this better than I do, of being in the minority and the kind of role you have in terms of the opposition and, and providing criticisms versus being chair and having to work to get things through committee to you know get uh, the kind of agreements necessary to move bills forward. Um, you know, I think the current chairman, Hansler Lang, has sometimes been criticized for being too extreme in his views and not being able to move certain things forward. Um, obviously, on the Democratic side, you're seen as being, you know, more on the liberal front and obviously uh, being um, quite a, a fierce um, spar with uh, the president um, and, and getting under his skin more than others <laughs> have been able to. So if, if you do become chair, do you see yourself sort of modifying your voice a bit to be able to, you know, have that kind of compromise necessary? I like to necessary. think of myself as being fair. And that's one of the things that drives me, you know. I think we should treat people fairly, and I want people to treat me fairly. And I think that um, when we take a look at some of the issues that we're involved with, I think that I, for example, with SEC, a cop on the block, 
um, they have developed uh, you know a strong benefit analysis mm -hmm. scenario mm -hmm. just to stop them mm -hmm. just to tie them up mm -hmm. just to make sure they can't do what they should be doing and what they want to be doing and so I would I would be very very uh, focused on uh, saying that cost-benefit analysis is an impediment uh, to our cop on the block being able to do their job and I feel very strongly about that I'm not so anxious uh, to be looked at as someone that will uh, compromise, that I will uh, forget about what caused us mm. uh, to go into a recession, almost a depression. And I will not forget about some of what I've learned about Volcker and FSOC and some of these issues and the way what role derivatives play uh, played in the meltdown and what role they could continue to play sure. as they, you know, trade with you know, everything from hedge funds to governments to insurers, you know. Uh, I have learned an awful lot. And so I will take my, the lessons very seriously, but I, I intend to be fair if I get the opportunity to chair. Okay, yeah, I guess the crisis was a good education. Good education, <laughs> yeah. great education, yes. A bit forced education, That's but right. yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> well, right. thank you very much You're for welcome. your time, Congresswoman. I You're really so appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. That serves as a warning to Wall Street if Waters gets the chance to lead the Financial Services Committee. I like to thank our producers, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.